You've come, have you? You source of tears to many mothers. You evil. I hate you. It is long since I saw you. But as I see you now, you are much more terrible. For I see you brandishing the downfall of my country. I hate you. These are the words of an English monk living in the year 1066 CE. The object of his ire was not a mortal man, but a spectacle in the heavens. Europeans at the time were accustomed to seeing star constellations and the routine predictable motions of the planets wandering across the night sky over the course of the year. But in 1066, they witnessed an ominous interloper in the darkness. Aside from the moon, the planet Venus is typically the brightest object in the night sky, seen at dawn or dusk. And astronomers in the Middle Ages knew it very well. Yet this strange new object shimmered many times as brightly as Venus. It was considered an omen of pestilence and death, and it arrived in the night sky at a time of increasing political instability. Its appearance was recorded that same year, stitched into the Baia tapestry, as a glowing star with a tail in the upper portion of the cloth. In the lower half of the tapestry, wide-eyed witnesses can be seen pointing their fingers at the object. And on the corner, a fleet of ghostly ships, the specters of a foreign army of invaders massing on the distant horizon. A few months after that strange object appeared in the skies of medieval Europe, during the Battle of Hastings, the Norman-French army of William the Conqueror would clash with the English army of King Harold II. Well over 10,000 men perished in the engagement, including King Harold himself. It was a brutal defeat for the English, seemingly confirming that the strange sight they had witnessed in their skies just a few months prior was a harbinger of destruction. Proof that the words of the English monk were downright prophetic. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. Today, we know that the people of Europe were witnessing a comet streaking through their night skies. And our knowledge about comets today is informed by science rather than superstition. We might well perceive the ire that that English monk had for the comet in his night skies as ignorant and foolish. And yet, surprisingly, some comets in Earth's history have indeed been harbingers of cataclysm capable of levying decimation and destruction, the likes of which most human eyes have never beheld. Join us today as we seek to understand the dire threat that comets and asteroids pose to every living creature on Earth, and how we might, one day, be able to save ourselves from them. By the latter half of the 1600s, Europe had left behind many of the superstitions of the Dark Ages. Embracing the intellectual virtues of the Enlightenment, it now had been just a few decades since Galileo first gazed at the heavens through his telescope. Countless revolutions in science were beginning to make traveling vast distances on Earth a practical reality. Wooden sailing ships were now crossing entire oceans traveling back and forth between continents. Maps and charts divided up the known world by latitude and longitude. Latitude could be inferred from the position of the sun at solar noon, but determining longitude on the open ocean proved more challenging. Some astronomers believed that the predictable motions of the heavens might be the most precise way to measure time and thus to navigate. Now, 
astronomy was no longer an academic curiosity, but a vital and pragmatic tool crucial for any empire that yearned for naval supremacy. And so, in 1675, the King of England added a new senior post to his households, that of Astronomer Royal, to determine precise longitudes and perfect the art of navigation. That same year, English astronomer John Flamsteed was appointed to this new prestigious post, while in the process of trying to catalog stars in the Northern Hemisphere, Flamsteed met a young student with a propensity for mathematics and a keen fascination with astronomy. Yet the young man wasn't just a fellow with a precocious intellect, he was an explorer at heart, and quickly put his studies on hold to sail to a remote island in the South Atlantic Ocean, about a thousand miles off the coast of Africa. It was called St. Helena Island. While Flamsteed sought to compile a catalog of stars in the Northern Hemisphere, the young student thought he could do the same for stars in the Southern Hemisphere. It was here, on St. Helena Island, that he also observed the transit of Mercury as the tiny planet passed in front of the Sun. Most astronomers now understood that the planets were in orbit around the Sun, not around the Earth, but many questions remained. The student believed that perhaps an observation of the transit of the planet of Venus might hold the key to accurately measuring the precise size of the solar system itself. This young student's name was Edmund Halley. He would publish his star catalog in 1678, and the King of England would decree that Oxford University grant him his degree. Halley would go on countless other adventures during his illustrious career. He constructed a large diving bell that he could sit inside of. The atmosphere in the cramped capsule could be replenished from the surface, and multiple times, Halley himself descended deep below the River Thames. Later, Halley would even become commander of a British naval ship called the Paramore, taking the vessel on the first purely scientific voyage that a British naval ship had ever been on. It was not without challenge, though. Halley's second-in-command questioned his methods and his competence as a commander, nearly to the point of mutiny. But perhaps Halley's greatest contribution to science came not from his voyages on or below the surface of the water, but from his correspondence on land and subsequent friendship with a reclusive, older scientific mind known as Isaac Newton. Newton had compiled an extensive manuscript that had gone unpublished for years. An astronomer named Kepler had sought to understand how the planets moved as they orbited the sun, but Newton's work sought to explain why they orbited the sun, an invisible force known as gravity. The young Halley beheld a wealth of mathematically sound calculations that explained everything in minute detail. Halley urged the reluctant Newton to publish his manuscript and even offered his own services as an editor. Ultimately, Newton said he would publish only after Halley agreed to pay for the cost of the publishing. And the principles of natural philosophy, sometimes known simply as Newton's Principia, became the most famous and influential work of modern science. And it would remain so for centuries to come. With such an impressive career, it seems odd to think that today we remember Halley for the comet that bears his name. Galileo had thought comets were a phenomenon of light, like an optical illusion of sorts. Newton, on the other hand, seemed to believe that comets were very real, physical objects. About a century before Halley began his career, an astronomer named Tycho Brahe helped to deduce not what comets were, but rather where they were. The philosopher Aristotle and astronomers since, had suggested that comets were within the Earth's atmosphere. But Tycho, 
used special measurements to determine that, in fact, comets existed beyond the Earth's moon, somewhere out in the heavens. The key to the Enterprise was parallax, observing an object from two different points, then calculating an angle of inclination. Many astronomers believed that comets came hurtling past the Earth, then sped out into outer space, never to be seen again. Newton suspected that comets orbited the Sun, just like the planets, but he wasn't confident enough in such a conclusion to integrate it into his model of the solar system. Halley was a man of far more confidence. He published a work on comets where he asserted that a comet he personally observed in 1682 had an orbit virtually identical to comets seen in 1531 and 1607, virtually identical because, in his estimation, it was the same comet, orbiting the sun and routinely returning about every 76 years. Halley predicted that in 1758, the comet would surely make its return again. In 1720, Halley succeeded John Flamsteed to become the second astronomer royal. Unfortunately, though, Halley would die in 1742, having never lived to see his prediction vindicated. From the beginning of the year 1758, European astronomers had been gazing at the skies for any sign of the supposed return of this comet, and they had found nothing. With just days to go before the end of the year, an amateur German astronomer named Johann Palisch, was gazing towards the heavens without the aid of a telescope, taking advantage of the long winter nights. And that's when he caught sight of it. A glowing orb with a misty tail traveling close behind it. The final vindication of Halley's work. One British magazine at the time wrote, quote, By its appearance at this time, the truth of the Newtonian theory of the solar system is demonstrated to the conviction of the whole world, and the credit of the astronomers is fully established and raised far above all of the wit and sneers of ignorant men. Shortly thereafter, it was dubbed Halley's Comet, and perhaps unsurprisingly, it returned again, right on schedule, in 1835. Today, we know that the comet of 1066, pictured in the Baia tapestry, the one that preceded the Battle of Hastings, was none other than Halley's Comet. And it wasn't the first recorded sighting either. Halley's Comet was a regular visitor to the inner solar system. Carvings on Babylonian tablets at the British Museum likely offer a record of the comet sighting in both 164 BCE and 87 BCE, respectively. Observational astronomy was common in ancient China, and one surviving manuscript from the Qin Shu Chronicles is almost certainly the first known record of Halley's Comet. In the night skies of Earth, more than two millennia ago, in 240 BCE. Even in the late 1700s, some astronomers speculated that the ghostly tale of comets came from volatile materials vaporizing as comets hurtle towards the sun, growing much, much warmer. But if comets vaporize or melt as they approach the sun in each orbit, eventually they would lose all their material and cease to exist entirely. Yet comets continue to appear again and again throughout recorded history. In 1950, astronomer Fred Whipple would suggest that comets were mostly ice, and the term icy snowball became a popular description of them. That same year, one particularly influential astronomer named Jan Oort proposed the existence of an enormous spherical haze of trillions of chunks of ice and rock surrounding the solar system extending to nearly one light year beyond the Earth. In 
or perhaps even further. The Oort Cloud. It would be far too distant for astronomers on Earth to observe, so while there was and is no indisputable proof that this theoretical Oort Cloud is out there on the outer boundaries of the solar system, most astronomers are all but certain of its existence nonetheless. In fact, Oort wasn't the first to propose such a hypothesis. It had been suggested in the 1930s by astronomer Ernst Oppik. Modern astronomers, broadly speaking, separate comets into two general categories. There are short-period comets like Halley's Comet, which complete a single orbit of the Sun in less than 200 years' time. The gravitational influence of large planets like Jupiter or Saturn might provide a sort of tug to short-period comets, drawing them towards the inner solar system where they end up with elliptical orbits. Short-period comets are believed to have come from the Kuiper Belt, a ring of icy objects beyond Neptune, orbiting around the Sun, much the way planets are, and far less expansive than the Oort Cloud. Then there are long-period comets, comets that have an orbital period greater than 200 years' time, sometimes much, much greater. They might orbit the Sun once every several thousand years, in a path like an elongated parabola, or oval or egg-shaped pattern stretched out. And their origins might very well be in the distant Oort cloud. For centuries, peoples from all different cultures told tales of mystical stones, often objects of worship that had fallen from the skies, from Native American tribes to East Asian nations. Perhaps the most famous of such stones was the Al-Hajaru Al-Aswad, or Black Stone, which lies in a building at the center of the Grand Mosque in the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The dark-colored rock was supposedly placed there by Muhammad himself. Islamic mythology teaches that the stone fell from heaven as a special guide for the first human beings. For some time, virtually all self-respecting scientists dismissed stories of magical stones falling from the sky as pure mythology and superstition. Rock and metal occurred naturally on the surface of the planet Earth, of course, but they never fell from the sky. Then, in 1794, a man named Ernst Chladny published a 63-page book where he made an outrageous proposition. He asserted that these so-called sacred stones fell to Earth from outer space, and that the mythological stories passed down from generation to generation were true accounts of cosmic rocks entering Earth's atmosphere. Chladny's work was mocked, derided, and dismissed in the years that followed. After all, he wasn't a geologist or even an astronomer, but a physicist who studied acoustics. Even so, eventually, his outrageous proposition began to gain acceptance within the scientific community. Today, we call these stones meteorites, rocks from outer space that have entered the Earth's atmosphere and impacted the ground without burning up entirely. In 1801, an Italian astronomer named Piazzi saw a peculiar, tiny point of light in his telescope. His observations soon confirmed that it was moving, another wanderer in the sky, much like the planet Uranus, discovered decades earlier. It was thought to be a small planet orbiting between Mars and Jupiter. It was dubbed Ceres, then the fifth planet from the Sun. Not long after, another planet was discovered, Pallas. Still others followed in a slew of new planetary discoveries. But even the best telescopes of the day couldn't see more than tiny dots of light when they looked at Ceres and Pallas. Through the lens of their telescopes, Jupiter was a red and orange world with four moons orbiting around it. 
Ceres and Pallas looked like tiny, faint stars orbiting the sun. In comparison to planets like Earth or Mars, these new planets were simply much, much smaller. In the end, astronomer William Herschel coined the new term asteroid, which literally meant star-like. In reality, these tiny points of light were the first signs of misshapen chunks of space rock orbiting out past the planet Mars. We now call it the asteroid belt. While planets look like near-perfect spheres, asteroids look more like lumpy potatoes. Pieces of debris left over from the formation of the solar system. Unlike comets, though, asteroids sprout no tail and presumably have no frozen material inside them. One might suppose that the work of Edmund Halley would have dispelled the notion that comets in the night skies were harbingers of earthly doom, at least by the 20th century. And yet, the return of Halley's comet in the year 1910 would prove to be one of the most frightening and unnerving since its 1066 appearance over medieval Europe. And surprisingly, the science of astronomy would be at least partially to blame for the hysteria that ensued. Spectroscopy, which sought to examine the wavelengths of visible light to determine the physical structure of an object, was now being applied to astronomy. French astronomer Camille Flammarion pointed out that traces of toxic cyanogen gas could be seen in the tails of comets. He suggested such cyanogen might very well enter into the Earth's atmosphere as our planet passed through the tail of Halley's Comet, poisoning every living creature on Earth. It was a strange prediction, considering there was no evidence that Halley's Comet had ever poisoned anyone during its dozens of passes over several centuries. Many astronomers scoffed at Flammarion's predictions, but some newspapers at the time were quick to seize upon the cataclysmic prediction. One headline of the day about Halley's Comet read, quote, Harmless or deadly? Scientists disagree. The sense of existential dread evoked by comets in centuries past had not vanished, even despite so many advances in science and technology. Some local businesses in the United States even sold gas masks to their customers to protect against the deadly gases that would soon be poisoning the air in a matter of months. In China, a Christian missionary recorded that there was political unrest in one of the provinces, and locals speculated that the appearance of the comet signaled a coming regime change and the end of the current ruling dynasty. Some locals in the area even refused to drink water for fear that it had already been poisoned by a vapor of pestilence. Then something happened that virtually no one could have predicted. At a diamond mine in South Africa, in the early hours of the morning, something appeared in the faint glow of the pre-dawn twilight. The object was not in the correct part of the sky to be Halley's Comet, but it was indeed a comet nonetheless. Since it was bright enough to be seen with the naked eye, no one person was credited with its discovery. In the days that followed, it grew increasingly brighter in the southern hemisphere, until it glowed five times as bright as the planet Venus. Eventually, it glowed intensely enough to be seen in broad daylight, with its curved tail stretching out across the bright blue sky. It would later come to be known as the Great Daylight Comet of 1910. By the end of the month, it became visible in the northern hemisphere of Earth, at least in the evening. In Portugal, devout Catholics stood on the coastline making the sign of the Holy Cross against their chests, disturbed by the ghostly visitor in the heavens. The length of the comet's tail extended well beyond the confines of the eyepiece of any telescope. At its peak, 
the comet covered one-fourth of the night sky. It was the cosmic event of a lifetime. Just a few weeks, though, after it had been sighted, its glow began to fade as the comet hurtled away into space. Halley's Comet would appear just a few months later, an impressive enough sight to behold in the southern hemisphere, but it paled in comparison to the great comet that had preceded it. Neither comet had ever posed any risk to the inhabitants of Earth. The cyanogen gas dispersed harmlessly into outer space with virtually no effect on the Earth's atmosphere. Was it safe to say, at long last, that comets were simply harmless, albeit beautiful sights in the night sky? No more threatening than, say, planets or stars? In the 1920s, a Soviet scientist from St. Petersburg Museum named Leonid Kulik made an expedition to a remote region in Siberia to investigate rumors that a blinding light had streaked across the sky back in the year 1908. The heavily forested region was covered in swamps, bogs, and swarms of insects. At first, many of the older locals were reluctant to offer any description of what they had witnessed. They said only that an ancient god had pronounced a curse upon the region back in 1908. But finally, Kulik found a man who was willing to speak openly about what he saw. He claimed to have been at a rustic Siberian trading post when it happened. The man said he was flung out of his rocking chair and hit by a blast of searing hot wind. He told Kulik, quote, Suddenly in the north, the sky was split in two, and high above the forest, the whole northern sky appeared covered with fire. At that moment, there was a bang in the sky and a mighty crash. The earth trembled. Kulik and his team went out into the swampy woods in the hopes of finding a blast crater from the object that the man had described to them. They found none. But what they did find was no less astounding. Millions of dead trees lying on their sides, flattened radially outward like toothpicks in every direction. The bark on these trees was charred black, and the dirt underneath them had been turned to ashes. Even more than a decade after the event, very little seemed to be growing in that area. Kulik and his team dug trenches in the swamps and pumped out muddy water in the hopes of finding meteorite fragments, but they found nothing. One thing was certain, something had slammed into the atmosphere on that day in 1908. Barometric pressure records from weather stations in Russia and other parts of Asia recorded an immense shockwave emanating from the region. The explosion that produced the shockwave was the equivalent of a thermonuclear blast 1,000 times greater than the Hiroshima atomic bomb dropped on Japan during World War II. Shortly afterwards, there was so much dust and ash in the upper atmosphere that people as far away as London could read newspapers at night in the eerie glow of sunlight that the dust reflected. If the explosion had taken place over a major city, millions of lives would have been lost. In 1930, a British astronomer suggested that perhaps a small comet had vaporized in the skies over the Tunguska region, causing what is today known as the Tunguska event. More recently, astronomers theorized that a small asteroid was the culprit, but that it exploded and vaporized a few miles above the ground in an airburst that caused the devastation. We now know that tens of thousands of tons of cosmic rock impact the Earth's atmosphere every year. The vast majority of these tiny objects burn up. We see them as streaks of light in the night sky, which we call meteors or shooting stars. A few fragments occasionally make it to the surface of the Earth. We call these meteorites. But astronomers estimate 
that every few hundred years, Earth is hit with the equivalent of a Tunguska event, when a larger object enters the atmosphere. The object that impacted the atmosphere over the Tunguska region was likely 50 meters, or 160 feet in diameter. Imagine the devastation that a larger object might cause. Centuries ago, the British Royal Society censured Edmund Halley for suggesting that perhaps the story of Noah's cataclysmic flood in the biblical book of Genesis was the result of a comet impacting the Earth. Halley's proposition was far too scientific for such devoutly religious men of the time. Halley himself may have been the first to recognize that perhaps comets were not omens of earthly strife, but that the objects themselves could pose a threat if they were to impact the Earth. In the late 20th century, a young American geologist named Walter Alvarez found himself in Italy studying a sort of holy grail for modern geologists, a massive outcropping of rock consisting of several layers of limestone. Recorded in the rock were tens of millions of years of Earth's history. In his 30s at the time, Alvarez only received his PhD a few years prior, and simply getting the chance to examine the limestone up close was a thrilling opportunity. Alvarez's father was one of the most renowned physicists on Earth, Louise Alvarez, who had worked on the Manhattan Project to develop the first atomic bomb in the 1940s, and in 1968, he had been awarded the Nobel Prize for his work in particle physics. To say that Walter Alvarez had big shoes to fill as a scientist would have been an understatement. The limestone layers that Alvarez happened to be examining were once the site of an ancient seabed, as evidenced by the countless fossilized shells of single-celled organisms. They were the remnants of an ecosystem that had been teeming with life. Yet in a narrow sliver of clay that separated the two layers, Alvarez found no fossils at all. It was a stark contrast, like night and day, and it appeared consistently everywhere in the outcropping, an outcropping which spanned both the Cretaceous and Tertiary periods, sometimes known as the KT boundary. It was a valuable clue, a clue that would lead Alvarez on a journey that would determine the course of his career and, in the process, redefine the history of life on Earth and humanity's place in the universe. At another KT boundary site, a rocky cliffside in Denmark, Alvarez found a wide variety of marine fossils and then a familiar layer of clay rich in sulfur, with hardly any evidence of life at all. Alvarez was staring at evidence of one of Earth's most recent mass extinctions, recent at least in geological time, but it begged the obvious question, what happened? Walter Alvarez discussed the quandary with his father at Berkeley. His father suggested looking for traces of iridium, an element far more common in meteorites than within the Earth's crust. If meteorites fell to Earth in a more or less constant rate, looking for traces of them might help to reveal just how long the rocks in question had taken to form. Alvarez ran a series of tests, and they revealed something shocking. The small layer of clay contained 30 times more iridium than any of the other layers, and it was the same all around the world. Samples of the clay from Denmark and New Zealand also saw extremely high levels of iridium. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Luis Alvarez, the illustrious physicist, thought that there might be some sort of cosmic explanation. One astronomer at Berkeley suggested that perhaps an asteroid had collided with the Earth millions of years ago. But could an asteroid really trigger a mass extinction? wiping out most life on the planet? Alvarez's father knew from nuclear weapons tests that prevailing winds could carry radiation all around the planet Earth, and they might very well sweep ash and dust around the globe 
in much the same way after an asteroid impact. In the summer of 1980, Alvarez and his father published their findings in the journal Science. Geologists and paleontologists scoffed at the new theory. Mass extinctions were very real indeed, but they were believed to be the result of gradual change. The dinosaurs and many other life forms did indeed perish tens of millions of years ago, but it was believed to be the result of climate change and subsequent changes in vegetation. The notion that one single catastrophe, like an asteroid impact, could explain away an entire mass extinction seemed far too simplistic, and a little too convenient. Perhaps there had been an asteroid or cometary impact, but the history of life on Earth was one that transpired over millions of years, and few respectable scientists believed that any one event could have a drastic, causal influence. The theory sounded less like science, and more like science fiction. And anyway, if such a massive object had indeed hit the Earth, why was there no sign of a crater anywhere? If the father and son team were correct about their bold new theory, the impact crater from such an event would have to be about 200 kilometers across, or about 125 miles across. There were very few craters on Earth matching that description, and the few that existed were not the right age. For years, scientists searched for evidence of such a crater in different nations all around the globe, all to no avail. The Alvarezes knew that such a crater might exist in the depths of the ocean, but no one had comprehensive maps of the ocean floor. And even if they had such maps, the crater might have disappeared under continental plates as they drifted and shifted over time. Geologist Walter Alvarez became frustrated and depressed. For a moment, he felt as though he had a great scientific revelation within his grasp. And now, he felt it slowly slipping away. Even if the theory were correct, they might never find the proof. The elderly Luis Alvarez died a few years later. He never lived to see whether his son's work could be vindicated. It was around this time that David Kring, a man with a PhD in Earth and Planetary Science, found himself on the island nation of Haiti in the Caribbean Sea. He had come there to gather rock samples, but the echoes of automatic weapons fire in the jungles beyond were a firm reminder that a military coup had been building there for quite some time. His life might very well be in danger. Only his obsession with his work kept him in the country. Finally, though, Kring left the island, bringing the rock samples back to his laboratory. They were rich in iridium, much like the layers of clay at the KT boundary. And there was another clue. Tektites. Chunks of molten rock heated to such immense temperatures that they had turned to glass. A clear sign of a volcanic eruption. Or an asteroid impact. An indication that he might be close to the elusive crater. Kring followed the clues to a huge depression in the Earth in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. The geographic feature, named for the town of Chichsalub nearby, was buried under hundreds of feet of sediment. Engineers working for an oil company had discovered and mapped it in years prior, concluding that it was likely an ancient volcano. They offered Kring a few rock samples, which he examined under a microscope. His hair stood on end when he realized what he had found. Shocked quartz. A violent event had shattered the very structure of the mineral, and there was only one such event that could have that effect. A cosmic impact. Not even volcanic eruptions could produce shocked quartz. The Chichsalub crater was half covered in sediment and half submerged below the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. The hole in the earth had simply been misidentified. It was not a volcano. And it was 180 kilometers wide, or 
110 miles across, almost exactly the same diameter as Alvarez had predicted. Radiometric dating revealed that the site was about 64.9 million years old. It was from the very precise point in Earth's history when the dinosaurs suddenly vanished. The tektites from Haiti were also of the same age. Kring had found the site of the impact. It was the ultimate vindication for Walter Alvarez, and the revelation proved that a single day in Earth's history had drastically and permanently altered the course of all life on Earth. Tens of millions of years ago, our planet was a very different place. The dinosaurs were the dominant species, and their reign had lasted for millions of years. Some were among the most massive land animals that ever lived. The largest, measured from head to tail, was 36 meters, or 120 feet in length. Then, on a seemingly ordinary day, a comet or asteroid over nine kilometers or six miles in diameter, about the size of Manhattan, entered the Earth's atmosphere. Traveling 40 times the speed of sound, the object would have made a fiery display. To conceive of this enormous object striking the Earth's crust defies human imagination. The amount of energy released was the equivalent of every nuclear weapon on Earth detonating simultaneously. The sound of the impact would have been heard everywhere on the planet Earth. The supersonic shockwave from the blast caused a spike in air pressure powerful enough to rupture the lungs of every air-breathing animal within 2,400 kilometers, or 1,500 miles. It caused a massive earthquake that would have registered as an 11 on the Richter scale. Trillions of metric tons of rock were ejected into the atmosphere, only to rain back down as fiery glass beads burning up as they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. These were the tektites that David Kring had found in Haiti. Firestorms raged throughout North and South America. The ash and dust in the atmosphere blotted out the sun in every corner of the Earth, creating a perpetual twilight that would last about a year. Plant life, unable to photosynthesize, died in a matter of months. Temperatures plunged all around the world. The impact had rocked the Earth's mantle, blowing out the crust on the other side of the planet, triggering massive volcanic eruptions in India. A mineral called gypsum had been vaporized during the impact, liberating an enormous amount of sulfur into the Earth's atmosphere. The result was sulfuric acid rain. It was this cosmic impact that caused over 75% of all life on Earth to perish. But a small number of warm-blooded mammals survived, perhaps burrowing deep below ground. They were humanity's distant ancestors. Comets and asteroids are littered throughout the solar system. We live in a cosmic shooting gallery. It is not a matter of if such an event could ever transpire again, but when. The work of Walter Alvarez proved that we all live one cosmic impact away from the end of the world as we know it. The late astronomer Carl Sagan said it best, quote, It's all a matter of time scale. An event which is improbable in a hundred years may be inevitable in a hundred million. Think of planets, asteroids, and comets as cars traveling on a highway. They won't collide head-on all the time, or even every day, but on a long enough time scale, it is inevitable that there will be collisions. In the early 1990s, a striking astronomical discovery seemed to confirm this reality. For the first time ever, a comet was observed 
that was not in orbit around the Sun. It was in orbit around the planet Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system. Jupiter is so enormous that a thousand planet Earths could fit inside of it. The comet had likely been passing by when it became captured by Jupiter's immense gravity. It was dubbed Shoemaker-Levy 9, after the astronomers who discovered it, Carolyn and Eugene Shoemaker and David Levy. And it soon became evident that the comet was being torn apart as it orbited the giant planet. Astronomers watched anxiously in the hopes that they might observe a cosmic collision. Some predicted that there might be very little to observe, that Jupiter would simply swallow up the cometary fragments with no visible effects whatsoever. After all, the comet was extremely small in comparison to Jupiter. The largest fragment was just a few miles across. But as the chunks of the comet slammed into the planet's atmosphere, the Hubble Space Telescope in orbit around the Earth revealed fireballs rising 1,900 kilometers, or 1,200 miles above the planet. It left Jupiter pockmarked in dark scars, large black clouds in the planet's atmosphere, big enough to be seen from Earth with even the weakest telescopes. The largest of these scars was twice the size of the planet Earth. By 1998, the threat of comets and asteroids was simply too real to be ignored any longer. The United States Congress directed NASA to detect and track 90% of NEOs, or near-Earth objects. Specifically, they were looking for NEOs with a diameter greater than one kilometer, or roughly half a mile. Objects like the one that killed the dinosaurs. Today, we have detected roughly 95% of those objects, but 5% might still be out there, lurking somewhere in the cosmic void. And NEOs that are smaller than one kilometer in diameter are far more difficult to detect. Those objects, much like the one that caused the Tunguska event, might not spell humanity's extinction, but they could easily wipe an entire city off the face of the map. In 2016, NASA founded the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, and the agency has plans to place a special camera into Earth orbit to better track NEOs. In the 21st century, our understanding of comets and asteroids has reached a new peak. We have now observed the first interstellar asteroid and the first interstellar comet. In the year 2001, a robotic spacecraft named Shoemaker, after the late astronomer Eugene Shoemaker, touched down on an asteroid. In 2014, a robotic spacecraft called Rosetta, built by the European Space Agency, orbited a comet, and a small landing module named Philae achieved the first ever soft landing on a comet. For some time, astronomers regarded comets as dirty snowballs, massive chunks of ice, the Rosetta mission revealed something very different. The comet's surface was dark like charcoal, and contrary to all predictions, there were no sizable patches of water ice on its surface. Planetary scientist Alan Stern said astronomers were surprised by the lack of exposed water ice. Rather than referring to comets as dirty snowballs, it might be more apt now to refer to them as snowy dirt balls instead. In 2019, a Japanese space probe found evidence of water on the surface of an asteroid. Some have argued that the distinction between comets and asteroids is slowly beginning to blur. A single asteroid, rich in metals like silver and platinum, could literally be worth not billions of dollars, but trillions of dollars. And with the private sector, like SpaceX, taking on an increasingly greater role in low Earth orbit, it should come as no surprise 
that the billionaires of the world have considered mining asteroids. In 2012, a startup company called Planetary Resources was founded for just such a purpose. As outlandish as their goals were, one of the company's founders had worked on high-profile robotic missions for NASA. In 2015, the United States Congress passed the Space Act, which would allow American companies to have all rights to whatever resources they extracted from any celestial body. A new precedent that could be described as finders keepers. It was a bold departure from the decades-old Outer Space Treaty, which stated that no nation on Earth could own any part of a celestial body. By 2016, Planetary Resources had raised $50 million. Another company called Deep Space Industries emerged shortly thereafter, and they too had ambitious plans to mine asteroids. The companies had charismatic leaders and inspirational videos with computer animated graphics. They depicted a glorious vision of human beings colonizing the solar system and reaping a bounty of endless resources along the way. Alas, though, it was not to be. In 2017, planetary resources failed to raise the money that they were hoping for. It was clear that the feasibility of asteroid mining was at least 15 to 20 years away, a long time for investors to wait. The company had an exceptional and visionary marketing campaign, but not the money or technology to make it a reality. The space infrastructure to make asteroid mining a reality simply is not there. Bringing an asteroid back to Earth would likely be far too expensive, so it would likely need to be taken to the Earth's moon for processing and refining, and that would involve building a lunar base for that purpose. An endeavor that would likely be even more challenging and expensive than capturing and moving the asteroid to begin with. Asteroid mining, at least for the time being, is not likely to become a reality anytime soon. It is still far, far easier to mine precious metals on the Earth. Profiteering aside, though, what would the human race do if we knew that a comet or asteroid was on a collision course with the Earth? In 2013, an asteroid hurtled through the atmosphere over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk. While most of the object burned up, it created a sonic boom that shattered windows for miles around. Hundreds of people were injured, primarily by broken glass. And yet, that very same day, an asteroid twice the size of the one that came down over Chelyabinsk hurtled within 5,000 miles of the Earth, closer than the orbit of our GPS satellites. If it had hit, the result would have been very much like the 1908 Tunguska event. In the year 2029, an asteroid called Apophis will come so close to the Earth that it will skim our outer atmosphere. It will be the first time in human history that an asteroid will be close enough for us to see with the naked eye in the night sky. Some evidence suggests that there is a small chance that this pass with the Earth might alter the object's orbit just enough to cause it to impact Earth in 2036, though the chances of that occurring are thought to be very, very low. If Apophis were to impact the Earth, it could level an area the size of the country of France. Do we have the ability to stop such an object from hitting the Earth? Theoretically, yes. If a robotic spacecraft or a projectile were to impact an asteroid, it might be sufficient to nudge it off course. As the Earth orbits the Sun, it travels the length of its own diameter, every seven minutes. So if an asteroid on a collision course were to arrive seven minutes later, or seven minutes earlier, it would miss our planet entirely. 
but simply crashing a spacecraft or projectile into a larger asteroid, like the object that killed the dinosaurs, likely wouldn't be enough to change its course. Tens of millions of years ago, early mammals on Earth hid underground after the asteroid impact, but bomb shelters and basements likely wouldn't be enough for us Homo sapiens to wait out an entire year of darkness. We would need more advanced shelters, and the planet that the human survivors would inherit would be a dismal one indeed, devoid of most plant and animal life for quite some time. To change the path of a large asteroid a few miles wide, we might need to resort to using nuclear weapons. In 1961, the Soviet Union tested the Tsar bomb, the largest thermonuclear weapon ever constructed. It weighed 27 tons and was estimated to be more than 3,000 times as powerful as the atomic bomb that the United States dropped on Hiroshima. It was so massive that it had to be slowed by a large parachute when it was dropped, just so the aircraft that dropped it would have the chance to get away from the blast in time. Detonating a bomb of that strength, or perhaps several of them, might be sufficient to deflect a larger asteroid. Or perhaps we would need to build an even larger nuclear weapon, ironically, to save the Earth from total annihilation. We wouldn't need to blow up the asteroid. We would simply need to detonate bombs on the asteroid's surface, enough to nudge it off course. In the 1960s, a team of physicists designed a 4,000-ton spacecraft that could be powered by nuclear explosions. It was called Project Orion, and it could have been built entirely with existing technology at the time. The project was canceled decades ago, and the spacecraft was never built. But if the human race were facing the threat of extinction from an asteroid impact, the technology studied in Project Orion might very well prove vital to our survival as a species. In the year 2021, NASA will launch a robotic spacecraft. Its destination will be an asteroid that lies between the planets Earth and Mars. It is called 65803 Didymus, and it is orbited by a smaller, rocky moonlet with a diameter of about 160 meters, or 524 feet, a binary asteroid system. If an object of that size were to impact the Earth, it could cause the equivalent of a Tunguska event or worse. Using its onboard camera and autonomous navigation software, the spacecraft will deliberately crash itself into the moonlet, causing a tiny change in its orbit. Astronomers all around the world will be observing the asteroid closely through their telescopes and measuring the precise changes in the motion of the two objects. This mission will be called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART for short. If the mission is successful, it will offer proof that human beings can use our technology to protect ourselves from near-Earth objects but there is no guarantee that the mission will go according to plan. And even if it does, this technology would likely not be powerful enough to save us from much larger objects like the one that killed the dinosaurs. Centuries of diligent astronomy have revealed to humanity a disquieting reality, that we live in a cosmic shooting gallery, or perhaps just a busy highway with lots of cars in the fast lane. We are sitting ducks. After ruling the Earth for millions of years, the dinosaurs' fate was sealed by a singular impact event in Earth's history. It would indeed be arrogant to think that human beings are immune to the threat of extinction. No one can truly say whether we as a species will survive the next century or the next millennium but our study of the universe that exists around us might offer us a fighting chance. 
we know the threats to our survival. But are we smart enough to overcome them? Only time will tell.